Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with Holocaust survivor Anne-Marie Yellen. During our conversation, Anne-Marie talks about growing up as a Jew in Germany in the 1930s, Kristallnacht, her father's abduction into a concentration camp, hiding from the Nazis during World War II, and her reflections on how humankind can prevent future genocides. Welcome to the show. Today I'm sitting down with Holocaust survivor Anne-Marie Yellen. And Anne-Marie, first I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with our listeners. Um, And I really want to start by just having you tell a little bit about your background, starting from your early childhood, and then just go from there. Okay. Okay. Uh, My name is Anne-Marie Yellen, and I'm what's called a Holocaust survivor, but I'm called, I'm a referred to as a hidden child because mm. I was in any camps or anything. I was hidden Catholic convent. And but it all started in November 9, 1938, mm. at what we call the Crystal Nacht, the night of broken glass. Until then I lived a very comfortable life in Germany. I was born in Chemnitz which is in East Germany, which is between Dresden and Leipzig. It's about two hours from Berlin. Mm -hmm. Because most people, when I say Chemnitz, they don't even know. Mm -hmm. It's a small town, Mm -hmm. very small. And at that time, it was the head of the textile industry. Mm. Today, actually, it's like your Silicon Valley here. It's very all computer and a lot of stuff like that. And uh, I lived a comfortable life. I really didn't know much what was going on. And my father always said, they don't mean us. We are Germans. I served in World War I in the Austrian army. I'm not, uh, they don't mean us. They mean the Eastern Jews, you know, from Poland, Russia, Hungary, and so on and so forth. So I didn't really realize it. First, the fact I was young, and you have to realize there was no TV, no computers, just radio, and people were not aware what's going on in the world like today. You turn on your TV and you know immediately what goes on. My father owned a business, a store, again, textile, ladies' garments, men's uh, garments, and my mother worked with him in the store, and I had like a nanny that would take care of me. Mm. And one day in about 1937, if I remember right, 36 or 37, she no longer was with us. And when I asked my parents, where is, you know, Maria was her name, and they said, oh, she had to go back to her village where she came from because most of the nannies you had came from villages, farmers and stuff like that. But I found out much, much later we had to let her go because a Christian woman could not work in a Jewish home where there was a man present because Hitler claimed that was the word Rassenschande, which is German for race shame. 
mm. and that the male, the Jewish male, would abduct her, rape her. I mean, this was all Hitler's ideas right. about Jewish males. But my parents never told me because you did not inform children like today, it's open. So that was about 36 or 37, to be honest. I can't remember the exact year. Then all hell broke loose in the November 9, 1938. Uh, I was nine years old, and we, it was on a Friday night. The irony, a lot of people don't realize that November 9, 1938, was a Friday night, the beginning of the Sabbath. See, Hitler knew exactly what to do. And we lived in, the, in downtown. We lived in an apartment building on the third floor, and the window from the dining room overlooked the main street, and there were a lot of Jewish businesses. Mm. And all of a sudden... I heard, I mean, if you ever heard of a bunch of glass breaking, it's horrendous. The noise is really hard. And we were just sitting down to the Sabbath dinner. And my father always blessed me. My mother lit the candles. And <clears throat> all of a sudden, this terrific noise. And I said, what happened? What happened? And my father, again, to protect the child, said, oh, they must be having a party. And they're going with banners making noise. Okay? So <coughs> the dinner was sort of interrupted, and we went to bed. And about 4 or 5 in the morning, I heard this tremendous knock at our front door, and there were two German Gestapo men, and they dragged my father out of bed and took him away. In those days, women were not bothered, just male. Mm. And they took him to the Chemnitz police station, and from there the next day he was taken to a concentration camp called Buchenwald. I don't know if you've heard of any of that. Buchenwald was actually a town <coughs> not far from Chemnitz because people don't realize that all the camps were actually towns. Dachau is a village. Buchenwald, Auschwitz, I mean, those were all oh, Theresienstadt. It's in the Czech Republic. I went through it when I was in. It's, those are towns. Anyway, he was taken. And, of course, our business was plundered, too. And the irony, which, let it be, which I found much later, my parents had to pay for the damage that they did. Hmm. They were responsible for the cleanup. And what they did, they took all the merchandise, you know, they stole everything. But we had to pay to fix the store. Mm -hmm. Everybody had to. Anyway, my father was taken the next day to Buchenwald, and he was there, and we lost our German citizenship. I became stateless. I came here with a stateless passport. And <clears throat> 
But if we could prove we were leaving Germany, my father would be released. Because in those days, what was it, Buchenwald, political prisoners that were against Hitler? Homosexuals, gypsies, and uh, people that were against Hitler. Mm -hmm. So my father was at that particular camp. My mother obtained false papers that were, we would be leaving to go to Santiago, Chile. But you bought those papers. They were meaningless. Mm. And after five or, five or six months, my father was released because my mother took those papers to Buchenwald. And there was a righteous Christian man who was a friend of my father. I remember driving my mother to Buchenwald, handing these papers to the commander of the camp in about April, around Easter time, like around this time, my father was released. But where do we go? Those papers, you could put them in the shredder. Well, the Belgium, Belgium was very good if you to be smuggled in. We went with a smuggler that you paid, and he took us across the border because Germany, West Germany, from Cologne to Belgium is nothing. So, but we had to travel with a knapsack just like you have on our back with a little bit of change of clothing, three German day marks, and we went from Chemnitz to Cologne, which was a long train ride. I mean, they don't have the, the tramvit tra like they have today. There was a long drive. I mean, it's, it's east to west. And as this is happening, is your father informing you more accurately as to what is happening mm -hmm. and what the plan is, or are you still Just, pretty much in the dark? Well, I'm in the dark, but no, we were going to Belgium. Right. So I remember it was in September of 39. We left literally with a knapsack on our back, because a lot of the art we had was confiscated. The silver was confiscated, except, like I said, my mother had jewelry, which she actually sold <laughs> to get the money to cross the border to Belgium, because you had to pay those smugglers a lot. Mm. The kids tell me today they call them coyotes. No more smuggler. It was so cute when I said smuggler and a little kid raised out. He says, you mean coyotes from Mexico. So, And was your, was your father at this point conceding that, you know, the, the problem was a lot more serious, obviously, Absolutely. than he originally After he thought? He came out of Buchenwald. He was a changed man. And he, what we, I was pretty religious with Friday night, the candles, Passover, all different dishes. When he came home from Buchenwald, he gave up. He said, where's God? what he saw happening in Buchenwald. And the rabbi whose congregation is named in Los Angeles that I visited, Stephen Weiss, 
was a bunkmate of my father mm. in Buchenwald. If you can, talk about what the circumstances were like in Buchenwald at that time. I know the concentration camps were just beginning, but what did your dad when see that led him to that? When he said that, like Stephen Weiss, the rabbi, they were beaten pretty mm. bad. He was not beaten, but he watched what was happening. So talk about Belgium. So you get into Belgium, so and what happens? So we crossed the border in the middle of the night, <clears throat> and it's silence because the Germans were very smart. They knew this was happening. Hmm. There was another couple I remember was a little boy. He was younger than I was because he was shorter, so I figured he was younger. And he kept crying, and they were trying to tell him to shut up because they were afraid the Germans were listening. But anyway, we got to Mal we got to Aachen. Aachen you cross into Malmedy through the Ardennes forest. When we got to Malmedy, I can remember like it was yesterday, was this big furniture truck and they put us on that truck and took us to Brussels, which is the capital. And they took us. It looked like an auditorium to me. Could have been a church. I don't know. It was a big auditorium. And they had these folding tables. And they had the alphabet. And my name, maiden name was Feller, F-E-L-L-E-R. <clears throat> so we were in the first group. And they gave us food stamps. They gave us housing, but when I say housing, it was one room, almost the size of where Anne Frank was in. One room, no bathroom. You had to go down three flights of stairs. And coming from a home where we had a bathroom, a dining room, a kitchen, I had my own room, it was an awakening to me. Mm -hmm. So at night, you just had a little party. You went... And they gave us money. Talk about as the war went on and as Hitler's goals and ambitions got bigger and bigger and he took more and more of Europe for, for himself and for Germany. How did that affect your life and what happened to you and your family personally? Well, what happened to me is very easy. Until <clears throat> from 1939 September till May of 1940, I started to adjusting to Belgian life, except I had to learn French. They didn't speak German, and I was talk. I was telling the kids, I'm way above bullying. I was bullied being Jewish and not speaking the language. But then the war broke out. Hitler occupied Belgium, Holland, and France. And we were told if we could get to Dunkirk. I don't know if you've heard, Dunkirk was very big in World War, in the beginning of World War II, the bombing the British and the Germans. If we could get to Dunkirk, they would have ships there hmm. for us to take to Great Britain. I had a sister who had gone to Great Britain in June of 38, because Great Britain brought in young women from the age of 18 to 26 to be domestic help. So we figured we get to Dunkirk, we got it made. Not only the Jewish uh, refugee, that's what we were called, but everybody tried to get to Dunkirk to get over to Great Britain. So 
We marched every day from Brussels to Dunkirk. It's like if, if you took over San Francisco, the ferry building, and marched all the way to Gilroy mm. on a highway. No freeway, just to say. There were cars driving, horse and buggies going. The Christians, too, they wanted to escape mm. Hitler. So we marched every day, and at night we found refuge in churches. They fed us. We slept on the ground, never changed our clothes. It took us almost a week. And when we got to Dunkirk, the Germans were waiting for us. They were there already. What happened after that? Well, those were German soldiers. What they did, they put us on these big army trucks, like you see in the movies, and took us back to Belgium. And they didn't question Jews, Christians, German, whatever. They just put us there. And we went back to our one room, and it didn't last long because then we had to report to the police station. It was now under Germans, no more Belgian. And that's when this star was issued to me. You're showing me your gold star, your yellow star that you, I'm assuming, were, were wearing for quite some time. Right. How did that work? So you would have to report to the police station. They would give you that star that you would then have to place on your clothing. Exactly. And tell me a little bit about what the temperament was like of your family. Is it nothing but anxiety, knowing that, believing that there's an impending Black cloud absolutely, that's coming over. Absolutely, we said we were back in 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 the realm that we would be executed eventually. So I wore this star <clears throat> from nineteen thirty, uh, from nineteen forty, about June or July, and then there was this righteous woman right here here she is when she was young she was 18 she was a student at the University of Brussels and she went to the Archdiocese of Belgium and she said Monsignor we have to do something these are children they're innocent and through the Archdiocese we were placed in different Catholic convents Girls in one, boys in another. Her and six other young women, students of 18, 19, hit altogether 800 children hmm. in different convents. Was it understood by them what the ramifications would be if they were discovered, what they were doing? And if Absolutely. so, they were, were... They lived, which is so amazing. I didn't bring it. I have a DVD where these women kept journals with a name and number, but not where we were. Hmm. What was that like? I mean, you're, you're in hiding. Do you have a sense of why this is all happening by this point and what you need to do to keep yourself safe? Actually, I was more scared than really fully understanding the consequences. I was scared. Mm. I was taken away from my parents. This woman met us at the center of town in Brussels and took us to the convent. We could not even say in front. When my father dropped me off, 
we couldn't, you couldn't even say goodbye because you don't know who was waiting at the corner. Because don't forget, there were Jewish people as well who denounced you because there was this guy by the name of Jacques who denounced Jews. He worked with the Gestapo, and he went every day looking for Jews. What was the tell me about the circumstances a little bit of what life was like within the the convent and how long you were there and, okay. and what what was it what was a day in the well, life generally like going in I was scared to death because the mother superior was a very staunch lady and there were only four there that knew that who was Jewish there were sixty Jewish children in that convent and I was more scared. It was different, because you have to remember, the nuns are wonderful. They're not like they are today. When I speak at Catholic schools, I said, if I dressed like that, I'd have been in big trouble. They were very strict, but they were kind. And I actually converted and a lot of people have said, oh, the nuns made you do it. I said, uh-uh. I wanted to do it because I never wanted to be wearing something like that on the street and be pointed at. Shrief, mm -hmm. you know, in French. Mm. So during your time there, you're there for obviously at least some a few three years. Three years. Three different, three, three years. Three and a half years, actually. During that time, do you it, it, does the fear ever go away, or are you always mindful of the fact that if somebody tips somebody off, or if you slip up in a conversation once, that could Absolutely. be Absolutely, but I I had fear, but not fully understood. Right. You know, because I was so involved with this new religion and I love the pomps and circumstances because you have to realize Catholicism really plays up. Maybe not today, but then it did. Were there any close calls during your three years there yes. where you thought this might be the end? Yes. There was one day the Mother Superior gathered the 60 children with another nun who knew who the 60 children were Jewish, she took us in the village for a walk because the convent was in a village about an hour from Brussels. And she said, children, I don't know how to tell you this. This was in June of 44. She said, today came a German officer. He was looking for a British parachutist. Because you have to remember, in June of 44, the British were flying over and dropping parachutists to check out the land for their landing. It was, was D-Day coming up. And she took us, she said, I'm not going to send you back to your homes. I will find other convents, but tomorrow, going to have to leave. So she kept us that night in the chapel of the church. We had our own chapel. And the next day, uh, different, different convents took us, 
And there only the mother superior knew who was Jewish. So we were transported, and I and three other girls landed in this convent in Brussels. And that was a very frightening experience because it wasn't a nice convent like the one I left. It wasn't a boarding school. It was like you would say today, like a reform school. Mm. So the kids were mean, the nuns were mean. It was horrible. Did you realize at the time that D-Day was upon the country like, and that it was... I heard, they heard, they used to listen to the British broadcast, but I fully didn't understand. Okay. You know, you sometimes you live in a world where you don't want to know, you close your ears. Speaking of that time, from the early 40s until June of 44, yeah. were you aware or were the other Jews who were also with you aware of what was actually going on no. throughout Europe and the circumstances of the concentration camp? Except one girl that was in the convent with us went home one weekend, and she never came back to the convent. So we found out much, much later why she was denounced by that Jewish guy on the street. So as time moves forward from D-Day, what is the next year like between the invasion and when the war is finally deemed over? Well, it was like freedom, freedom, freedom. And then I had an my father, through the Red Cross, found an aunt that was a half-sister of my mother who lived in San Francisco, who sponsored me. Because in those days, it was very hard to come to America. You had to be examined, uh, diseases, uh, so that you did not belong to the Communist Party, mm. because that was the time, you know, where they were really checking. So I came in May 15, 1948, I had to go through the embassy in Belgium, be examined, tested, no venereal disease, no uh, TB. And I came here, and not only me, but my aunt told me, she picked me up at the ferry plaza, because in those days there was like a train station. It wasn't like it is today. <coughs> and the <coughs> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. The first thing she said to me was, in perfect German, because she still spoke perfect German, she said, now you're in America. We don't talk about it. Nobody cares. And that was the actual truth in 1948. Nobody talked about what happened. It's over. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. Did you ever learn the circumstances and details of what happened to the rest of your family during the time of the Well, Holocaust? okay, sure. My aunt and grandmother, who lived in Chemnitz, her husband went to Shanghai. She wouldn't leave her mother. So they were the first to go to Auschwitz. They were exterminated. How about your parents? My mother died in Brussels. During the war, she had a cerebral hemorrhage, and Jews were not allowed in hospitals because we were under the Germans. And she eventually didn't really know much where she was. 
and she passed away. She's buried in Brussels. My father came to this country. He came here. How was he able to survive? What, what did he do during uh, the Holocaust? He was hidden, just like a lot of Jews were. He, he was hidden in an attic, very similar, where we first went, like Anne Frank. Hmm. I mean, Anne Frank, they made the story. You know how many cases like her are alive? So since then, you've now lived almost an entire life in San Francisco and lived an almost an entire life in America. It, did those circumstances and the events of World War II, do you think they were permanently impactful on your life? Or did you try to move on and just get over it? Or how did you cope with what, what, it, what your okay. experiences were? You, you move on. You can't stay with what happened. You move on. And like I always say, it's time to forgive, but never forget. Because you can't live with hate in yourself. I went back to Germany in 1997 as their guest. They brought a lot of people back to the towns, like Chemnitz, Berlin, Frankfurt. They all brought their people back. And I went... First, I didn't want to go, but my husband talked me into it. He said, go, you need a closure. So I went. Of course, the apartment building where <coughs> I lived is no longer there. I mean, the Russians bombed Chemnitz and Dresden and Leipzig to pieces. But the street name was still there. Mm. There is a new building there. I went to the street where my father's store was. And there now is a big computer store. Mm. And I'm out there taking a picture, and this young man, about your age, comes out, and he speaks German, and he says, what do you do? You know, can I help you? And I said, and I tell him the story. He invited me in for coffee, and, which I did, but he was very, he had a lot of empathy. Mm. Are there other events that are going on currently or that you've seen since the end of World War II that uh, remind you in many ways of what the Jews and the gypsies and the homosexuals went through during World War II that perhaps most people aren't aware of? It doesn't get as possibly as much recognition as the Holocaust does? It goes on every day, my dear. Look what just went on in Kansas. And the guy who shot those people, they weren't even Jewish. Hmm. He still had that hate goes on every day. Mm. Listen, haven't, I've heard that expression, I'll Jew him down. Things haven't changed. My husband, who was raised in the, born in the United States, served in World War II, served in the Korean War, went all through school. He said he used to have to run home because they used to call him dirty Jew. Do you think it's getting better? Do you think that in in America, in the world, things are changing at I least think, mildly for I the really better or do. not? I think that it is changing. It's a very slow change, but I think it is. Especially, I would say, in California. Mm. Mm. I don't know some of the southern states. Mm. I lived there <clears throat> when my husband was in the service. And they still had, in 1951, they still had the benches separating blacks and whites. 
I said, oh my God, I'm back in Berlin because they used to have the benches chosen. Last question I want to ask you is about prevention and, and learning from the past. Given your life story and given what you've seen, what are the tools that humankind has to try to avert circumstances and um, genocides like the one we've been talking about? Acceptance. That's the word that I teach the kids at school. Accept people who they are. Not what you want them to be. Accept who they are. Acceptance of people is the most important. And that's what I try to emphasize to the kids, you know, to accept your neighbor, accept your whatever. Because people are people. They're good people, they're bad people. But you know who to accept. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with my listeners, Amy. Okay. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.